After conquering most of Europe, Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte dispatched a combined French-Spanish fleet of 33 warships to take control of the English Channel in preparation for the imminent invasion of Great Britain. He had to control the seas before he could take the land uh, by his uh, Grand Army. He even positioned the Grand Army on the coast of Normandy and near Calais so that the English would see the vastness of what the threat uh, Incur, uh, would incur. But sailing north on October 21st, 1805, at Cape Trafalgar, French Admiral Venu encountered the numerically inferior fleet of Lord Horatio Nelson, First Viscount, Duke of Bronte, Knight of the Bath, and Rear Admiral of the Royal Navy. Nelson, whose axiom was, forget the tactics, go straight at them, commanded a signal be sent through the fleet. Using the numeric flag code system known as the telegraphic signals of marine vocabulary, Nelson's flagship, the Majesty's ship Victory, hosted this message. England expects that every man will do his duty. Like Paul's other epistles, uh, we are now going to look at the halfway point where we look at the duty of being a Christian. He starts off with doctrine. And then he finishes up with duty. Always that first. Always the uh, indicatives first, then the imperatives, doctrines, and then duty. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we saw a good bit of doctrine in chapters 1 through uh, 3. And now we're going to see duty in particular in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. This morning, we're going to see that we are to walk to please God and that we are to obey God's will by being sanctified in holy conduct. God expects every Christian to do their duty. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you now uh, eager to know your will for our lives, God. For those of us who have the Spirit of God within us, those who are born again, those who have been adopted into the family of God, we love you. And we thank you, God, that because of the Holy Spirit, we are uh, living fulfillments of the new covenant, that the law is written upon our hearts and yet, Lord, it is written on our hearts, and that heart is encased in flesh, and flesh that is often tempted to do things we should not do. So we need you. We pray, pray God, this morning that through this passage, you would show us how we can walk to please God and show us how we can obey your will by being sanctified in holy conduct. Bless us, we pray, with your presence, with your power, with conviction, and with encouragement. In Christ's name, amen. Again, please do turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. You might find your home group helped insert of some assistance as we, and, uh, we follow along uh, in this particular passage here. Uh, first of all, we're going to see here that your walk is to be pleasing to God in verses 1 through 2. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how you, are to, you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually are doing, that you may excel still more, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have here a transition here. We've got a new chapter break. It's this one of those times where a chapter break actually works. It's appropriate. So he's saying here, finally, brethren, now he's going to transition here and he's going to move from these indicatives, uh, who you are in Christ, to the imperatives, what you are supposed to do about that. This is always Paul's pattern. And it's the right pattern. If you get those reversed, you end up being a legalist and you end up trying to earn God's favor with your behavior or through ceremony or some other uh, thing and then trying to figure out the doctrine at the end. 
who you are in Christ has to start before you are to go to what you do to please Christ. But this is actually also the pattern of Scripture in general. Even the Ten Commandments. If you were to think, all right, where is the law set forth? Where do we see it in, in its most potent form? It would be the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments contain a prelude. Before you get to any of the big ten, it starts off with Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the basis of their identity. I am God, there's no other. I am the one. You are slaves. I have now freed you. You are now mine. The indicative first. Who you are in God. Then you shall have no other gods before me, etc. Right? So this is a good pattern for us to keep. It's, it's one that we have to keep in mind. We try, tend to remind you of this all the time, but it's because we need to because we are natural-born legalists. And we so often, too, too often forget who we are in Christ. But that's actually the motivator for obedience in so many ways. Remember Paul, as he was closing in chapter 3 here, and said in 1 Thessalonians 3.13 uh, that he wants to come there so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. Unblameable in holiness. That is something to ponder. That's the position of the Christian. If you are in Jesus Christ, the blood has washed away your sins. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. God the Father sees you unblameable in holiness. But what does that look like? That's what the rest of this passage is about. He goes on to say, we ex request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Thessalonians is so refreshing after going through uh, 2 Corinthians with uh, the troubled church. Remember how many times Paul, indeed, Paul devoted chapters to this, having to reestablish his authority. I am an apostle. I told you truth. You're now rejecting me. Why are you rejecting me? The truth that I brought you transformed lives. You know, there's none of that in Thessalonians. They get it. You're an apostle. You represent God. We want to serve God. Just tell us how. It's so refreshing. So instead of coming down and saying, I command you, I command you, I command you, it's I am requesting here and I am exhorting you to be able to do this. This is a great position for a pastor to be in. A great position for a pastor to be in. To be able to, to act as a peer instead of coming down with the, with the authority uh, club, which is also sometimes necessary. That you, as you received instruction from us, this is not a new idea. This has already gone before here. Uh, uh, and uh, I like what James Grant says. He says, if we do not understand the indicative, the act of God, the cross of Jesus, it's impossible for us to joyfully obey the imperatives, the commands of God. And what I love about that quote is his emphasis, joyfully obey. You see, the world and sometimes in our flesh, we think the same thing too, is obedience is a burden. It's a negative. When I was some 42 years ago when I had, was pondering whether or not, uh, in my mind, become a Christian, choose Christ, you know, at that time. You know, one of the things I had to realize was, oh boy, there goes the weekend. <laughs> you know, there goes the weekend. And what did God do? He, he got to where I wasn't living for Saturday night. I started living for Sunday morning. You know, only God could do that. But I, was, I seriously counted the cost. I, I know what this means. I don't know anything about Christianity. I couldn't tell you hardly Bible verse. But I know some of the things it means because I feel guilty about them. Right? But here's the thing. When you are adopted and you're no longer a slave, but you're a child of God, you want to get rid of those things. You realize the pain of those things. You realize that the love of God compels you to be able to walk according to the instructions. 
And then I love, of course, Paul uses this term, and now how we are to walk. It's not a bad idea for us to consider ourselves on their great journey. We are, we are on a journey. We are on a passage. Uh, we are on a quest. And it's important because a lot of life is dull. It just is. And there's times in journeys that are, that are dull. But we are. We are, in a sense, we are on a pilgrim's progress. We are Christian. And we go through the pitfalls and the blessings and the glories and everything. And eventually we will reach our destination. God has assured that. And Paul uses this term, walk, 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 walk. This is, he, he loves to promote authentic Christian living as a lifestyle of, that we are journeying in. And it really appeals to humans, doesn't it? Think about the, the, those of you, especially those of you who love literature, those of you who are learning to love in, literature. Think about the number of journeying, walking books that are out there or that you were required to read for summer reading while you were in school. The Odyssey. The Aeneid, Canterbury Tales, Don Quixote, Pilgrim's Progress, Alice Adventures in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, The Grapes of Wrath, Fellowship of the Ring, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Watership Down, 2001 Space Odyssey, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Life of Pi, and the greatest of all literature, The Prince's Bride. Right? <laughs> They're all... They're all, there's just in us to get this principle that we're on a journey. Well, how that journey goes in many ways depends on how you walk it. How well do you behave yourself? How, what's your goal? What's your destination? What's your power in this walking? Paul uses this metaphor of walking over 32 times. I mean, get the point, right? 32 times, walk, 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 walk. And that's really what he's trying to do. How are we to walk? To please God. That is our ultimate desire. Now, in truth, a slave can please God. Uh, they can learn, of course, to have great affection for a loving master or anything. But it's, it, but it's really natural in a child, isn't it? And we want to please our daddy. We want to please our father. We want to please our parent. This is the principle of man, right? The great chief end of man. What is man's chief end? Westminster Confession of Faith asked in the shorter catechism question. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, when the world hears that, this thing that y'all keep saying, you know, we all know question number one. When the world hits that and think, wait a minute, if I'm going to glorify God, how in the world can I have any pleasure in it? When you get the Holy Spirit, you know that that is pleasure. Saying no to the world. No to the fleshly indulgence, no to whatever it might be, and yes to God actually will give great pleasure. And I love how Paul just works so hard to encourage the Thessalonians, just as you actually are walking. So he's trying to, he's, he's told them something, he's reminding them of it, but he also wants to affirm that they really are walking, you know. Uh, I do this with, I had this amazing class at Anderson University this year, and they're just such great students, and they're working really hard. And, and sometimes I come down on, you got to remember to put the dates down there, you know, for, for instance. But y'all are a great class, you know. And that's the way it ought to be as we are training our children, right? You, you, you messed up again, but you're wonderful and you're loved. And this is what Paul is doing to the Thessalonians. This is great leadership training here, if, if nothing else. And then he wants us to excel still more. Folks, you've got to get it out of your mind that you can just sort of reach a certain level and then I can be satisfied with my Christian walk. You, you will never reach that level until you draw your last breath. 
And he wants us to excel still more. That idea of excel is to abound, to abundantly supply, to overflow, as we saw last week, to exist uh, in a full quantity, to be over and above, uh, around and advanced. It could also uh, mean extraordinary or surpassing. We are to work on this. This is our great ambition in life. This is more important than any career goal. This is more important than any financial goal. This is more important than any parenting goal. It's more important than losing 20 pounds before Christmas, which is not going to happen if you're a member of this church. <laughs> this, is, this is our consuming is We want to excel, never give up. You can never, ever, ever go on the defensive in the Christian life. Never even think about building a trench. You've got to go on the offensive constantly. You've got to fight the good fight. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Do you not know that those who run a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive an imperishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way, not without aim. I box in such a way, not a beating the air, but I buffet my body and make it my slave. Possibly after I have preached to others, I should be, uh, I should be disqualified myself. Whatever, whatever pains of self-control you have to go through, you will be rewarded. But the reward is quiet. The reward comes in peace. Not in immoral ecstasy. And it's a long-term reward. But those who've been trained in this know this and recognize this and want this. For you know that the commandments we gave you here, he's again recalling that they had already given these commandments, by the authority of Jesus Christ. He wants them to know, I'm not just making this stuff up. This, this isn't just Paul speaking here. This is what Jesus talked here. So in order for us to be able to understand that, we must be immersed in God's word. We must be in church all the time. We must be reading good books. We must be listening to good sermons. We must be praising God. I would start off every day, if I were you, uh, in the word of God, so that you can understand what the will of the Lord is. And then after this introduction of how we need to walk here, he's going to give us two, two specific examples of how we do that. Uh, and the first is avoiding sexual immorality, which we'll, see, we'll talk about today in verses eight, uh, 3 through 8. And then uh, pursuing brotherly love, which we'll look at, Lord willing, next Sunday, verses 9 through 12 here. But both of them provide us uh, evidence of our sanctification. So here's a, here's a, a great opportunity. He's going to pick out one of the most difficult, most challenging uh, areas of self-control where we need to buffet our body in order that we can enjoy this magnificent relationship we have with God and, and to glorify Him. So we start off here with God's will, your sanctification, verses 3 through uh, 8. God says, Paul writes, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger of all things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he rejects this as not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So here, you know, people ask all the time, you know, what's God's will for my life? What's God? Here's the answer. Your sanctification. Well, what about a job? He'll open that door. You focus on the sanctification. 
You work at what it takes to, to, to be able to get that job that you want here. This idea of sanctification uh, is, is basically uh, from the Greek word that re represents holiness here. It's a process of becoming holy. Sanctus being the Latin word for holy is joined to the Latin verb facar, which means to make. So it's God making you holy. But in the process of sanctification, you cooperate with God. In the process of salvation, it's all God, 100%. Okay, uh, it's monergistic. All the energy comes from God in sanctification. It's synergistic. You work together with God. So God does the work, but you but some sweat is required of you. Some effort is required from you here. But it's always connected. This idea of sanctification is always connected to, to doctrine in general, again, with the, the uh, indicatives of who we are. Ephesians 1, 4, for instance, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. One commentator says this, Holiness, therefore, is the boundary marker that separates God's people from all the other nations. It's the thing that makes us stand out or should make us stand out. One reason why I think the church in America is in decline is because the church in America has just lost its desire for holiness, lost its desire to be different from the culture. We keep trying to ape the culture in order to get the culture's people to come in and sit in our chairs and help pay our rent. And that's just not God's answer for things. God's answer for things is to be different from the culture. Can you take it too far? Yeah, you can take it too far. But I don't think we can take it. I don't think we're in danger of taking it too far right now. So here's what, here's what we do. He actually he kind of defines sanctification in a, in a large way with this comment. That is, that is, you abstain from sexual immorality. He associates sanctification uh, with this idea of abstaining from sexual immorality. Now, in most generations, that wouldn't have to be defined. But in our generation, we need to be able to define that. And we need to be able to camp upon the Word of God, no matter how unpopular that is. So anyway, this idea of sexual, you know, the sexual urge is, is, is one of the most powerful urges in the human body, besides maybe hunger and thirst. But, you know, in our country, we tend to not go thirsty, not go hungry. So that leaves lots of time for us to be tempted uh, in, in, in immoral ways. In, in, in so many ways, uh, sexuality is the most rewarding when it's satisfied, uh, that, that desire is satisfied lawfully. Hebrews 13 says marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. Uh, it, within the context of covenant marriage, sex is a blessing. It is a gift. It is something to be enjoyed, and it is extremely rewarding. But outside the confines of covenantial heterosexual marriage, it is extremely dangerous. And it is immoral, not moral. So what are we to do? Abstain. Abstain. We're just to not do it. We're to have complete abstinence from sexual immorality. Immorality is, uh, comes from that word porneia, any form of illicit sexual behavior uh, that deviates from a monogamous relationship between husband and wife. And again, our culture is absolutely obsessed with sexual immorality. We've actually even, we're now defining it in a sense as a virtue of our culture, which is terrifying. But, you know, we're always thinking we have it worse than anybody else. Folks, we don't. We don't. I would submit to you that Paul's culture was probably much worse than what we have. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have television. They didn't have movies. They didn't have twerking. You know, they didn't have any of those things. But... They had this, uh, and this comes to us from James Grant, kind of a summary of what Paul dealt with 
uh, uh, 2,000 years ago in places like Thessalonica. In Paul's day, marriages in Greek and Roman world were set up by family arrangements. Young men in their 20s and young ladies in their teens had barely met when they were married. Marriage was simply a legal arrangement for the exchanging of money and goods and the ability to have children. This created an environment in the Greco-Roman world where most people didn't expect husbands to be committed to their marriages. Sexual misconduct and adultery were widespread. Prostitution was a business just like any other source of income. Innkeepers kept slave girls for sexual entertainment of their customers. An adulterous activity was so widespread that Emperor Augustus established law codes to reform marital conduct. Living several centuries before Paul's time, a man by the name of Diomosthenes explained the situation this way. Mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being, and wives to bear us legitimate children. There's the serious downside of a patriarchal society, right, that doesn't know, that doesn't know Christ. Of course, we saw this reflected in Paul's writing to the, to the Corinthians, reminding them of their past, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, or the covenants, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And I love this part. And such were some of you. But you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. God forgives sexual immorality. God forgives sexual sin. And when you're forgiven, he expects your people to behave, his people to behave themselves in accordance to what scripture teaches here. Not only was sexual immorality part of the culture and accepted, it was actually part of the religious cultic prostitution was a, uh, in some religious uh, sects at the time, too. You, you literally would worship through sexual immorality. So he has an expectation for sanctification that we are to be hearts unblameable and holiness before our God. Here's the thing. If you're a Christian, your heart is unblameable and you are holy before God. And what God, sanctification is saying is now act like it. Behave like it. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, under, under good Christian fellowship, under being immersed in the Holy Word, say no to those impulses that once drove you to excesses. And, you are to, and each one of you are to possess his own vessel in sanctification of honor. Some of the older translations translated that word vessel uh, to mean wife, but the ESV has probably got it best. It really probably means body. Uh, and, 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 and it's important to focus on that because it's our, it's our bodily urges, it's our glands that are, 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 are kind of receiving the brunt of that temptation in many ways. But one thing that seems to be lost in our culture is that sex is not only physical. It is not only physical. It's not just a body thing, a gland thing. It's also mental, emotional, and spiritual. That's why there's no such thing, no matter what the government says, no matter what the school says, as safe sex. If you have sexual immorality and you don't get a sexually transmitted disease, you're not caught in adultery uh, or whatever else might, might happen, you still have emotional involvement. It's a spiritual exercise in so many ways. And, and, the, and the, the culture doesn't take that into account. They just sort of see us as highly developed animals enjoying themselves. And there's a train wreck out there, a train wreck of emotions and people who are spiritually scarred. 
Scripture speaks of this, 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee immorality. You are to flee it. You don't, you don't see how close you can get to it. You don't try to see how close can I get to this candle before it burns me. You are to flee immorality. Every other sin a man commits outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. 1 Peter 2, 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust. And what do they do? They wage war against the soul. Boy, do we have a culture that is waging war against the soul. So much of the misery is out there. It's because people have ignored God's commandments in this, in this particular regard. One of the things, if, if you're a Christian, you're going to learn this either the easier way or the harder way. Okay? And, and, and the principle is this, as Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, the sanctified soul is the satisfied soul. The sanctified soul is the satisfied soul. Showing self-control, showing prudence, waiting for marriage before you perform the sexual act, there are going to be blessings that are bound. Some of them you won't even see. But they are, like I said, they're more quiet blessings. They're more peaceful blessings they're the blessings that all the, that keeps all that chaos out of your life because you're walking in disobedience of god there they in a sense that can't be compared to the the instant ecstasy that one receives but then you get this flood of shame and guilt afterwards if you're a christian because you've offended the holy spirit you've quenched the holy spirit so basically as paul is admonishing the thessalonians to control their bodies the unredeemed human flesh which is the beachhead for our sin and our immorality, as one commentator says it. He has an expectation for us. And basically, that expectation is on a positive side and includes honor. This is the result of separation from sin. We honor God. We also end up honoring our own bodies. Our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And he draws a comparison here, the way we're supposed to behave. And then he says, not in lustful passion like Gentiles who do not know God. That idea of passion, it can be a positive, but it means that in this con context, uncontrollable desires, compelling feelings, overpowering urges. It's basically an out-of-control craving. You live for that moment. And this was characteristic of the Gentiles of Paul's days. It's characteristic of non-believers uh, in our day as well. Therefore, we are not to be associated with that. It just should not stick to us. It should not be part of what, uh, of what we are doing in our lives here. To live a life of lust is to live like a Gentiles who, and what does he say here? Who do not know God. Now, where does this casual idea of recreational sex come from in our culture? Well, it, there's many facets to it. Basically, we're a secular society. We no longer fear God. We no longer believe in absolutes and things like that. But let me just give you a few ideas because it's these ideas you've got to combat in order to keep you, uh, to help you walk in purity and help you to train others to do so too. First of all, there's a, this is the logical conclusion of evolution. If you are nothing but a naked ape, if you're nothing but a more highly advanced swamp monkey, uh, then, then you're just going to be driven like, like an animal in heat. And it's just expected. It's just expected. We are came from animals, we therefore are animals. So forgetting the fact that we are made in the image of God. It's a denial of original sin. Mankind is basically good. What harm is it? Sex is merely a physical act, as I've already mentioned. Already, it denies the spiritual and emotional aspects. Uh, no view of eternity or coming judgment or accountability. If it feels good, do it. 
Or as Paul said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You know, kind of a, a standard Greek uh, thought. Hey, let's just, uh, let's just enjoy the time here. There's, there's no accountability. Immaturity and, of course, short-sightedness is instant gratification. We, are, we have a culture that has trained us in immaturity. It's denial of the negative consequences. Uh, sex is the most pleasurable act, so ensure the pleasure by acting on it before marriage. I mean, if, if it's this much fun, why not do it all the time, right? I remember an interview years ago. They were interviewing this woman. I think she was in her 70s. She says, oh, yeah, you ought to have sex before marriage. You wouldn't buy a shoe before putting it on. I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, so I turned that, where's that remote, you know? That's the mentality, though, right? Try it out as if that's the only aspect of marriage that you need to be considered of. The negative attitudes about marriage because a number of broken marriages. I mean, basically, marriages have failed everywhere. Half of us grew up in failed marriages. Therefore, uh, we want to avoid marriage, but we want the benefits, so we're going to shack up together, we're going to sleep together, and we're going to do all these other things, but without that covenant commitment, because we want an out clause, you know. And you've seen here in the last, what, 20 years, the age of marriage has gotten more and more and more and more, and there are more and more people that are choosing a single life. Part of the reason why is they have abandoned one of the great motivators. God intends that sexual intercourse between husband and wife to be a motivator for covenant marriage. It is God-blessed, honorable sexual intercourse. But instead of waiting for that, uh, we're just giving it away for free. So you would kind of lose this interest in, in being married. And then, of course, rejection of moral absolutes in general. You know, uh, well, you're just prudish, you're puritanical, which, by the way, is a compliment. Uh, you, you, uh, you know, oh, you're just judgmental or, uh, or that's your truth. Or this is my truth and all these other things that have come into our culture. And there's, a, a, of course, a long, a long list uh, of these kind of things here. But Ephesians chapter five, verse three, Paul says this, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. That's the kind of distance that we are to have here. And he goes on to say, and that, so we avoid this, not be like this, these lustful Gentiles, but and that we, no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. That idea of transgress uh, is to sin against, or it, it's, it's really kind of a principle of stepping over the line here. Uh, and we don't take uh, uh, immoral advantage of someone. Now, the brother here, of course, is Christians. And this kind of goes back to, to the Ten Commandments, right? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. When people come to church, when people are Christian, they ought to be safe uh, from lurid thoughts, uh, from angling, from flirtations and things like that. Uh, but, but I would say that in many ways, too, if, especially if we look at what's happening in our culture, this idea of, of, of brother actually has to do with community uh, as, as well. There, there is something when, when someone has an affair, a noxious vapor just kind of goes all over the, the city. It, it, it hurts every one of us. We don't even know it. But another broken marriage, another broken heart, another compromise, it hurts every single one of us. And this is a principle that we need to be able to understand and defend uh, as Christians. Our brother is also our neighbor in many ways. Gene Green says this, what many would view in our day as strictly personal issue is understood by the apostle as a community issue that has eternal consequences. 
Now, let me give you some statistics that talk about the consequences that, we, that we're talking about here. Uh, many of us watched in horror on the Internet, on the news, a couple of years ago as cities were being burned left and right and police cars were being inflamed and everything. Those consequences, that anarchy that is so prevalent, uh, it really in many ways has to do with a, a culture that has completely ignored God's command on this particular issue. So let me give you the consequences of out-of-wedlock births. 86% of abortions are to single women. 86% of abortions are to single women. So you take, what is it, a million abortions every year? 86% of those deaths are a result of people ignoring this particular uh, 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 commandment. 41% of American population of babies born in America now are out of wedlock. 29% to white women, 53% to Hispanic, 71% to, uh, to uh, black women, 58% to cohabitating couples. Uh, and I got a list here. Uh, Out-of-worth wedlocks are significantly associated with rates of violent crime and burglary. It reinforces the cycle of welfare because the government becomes the father. And it's very often the father who's the one that's abbot, not always. It's related to poor health at birth, related to uh, uh, delayed development in early childhood, related to poor academic performance uh, of high achievers in school. Half uh, uh, out-of-wedlock uh, children are at half a percentage of what the others are. Related to emotional and behavioral problems, abuse, alcohol, drug use, expulsion from school, weaker conscience. Uh, according to Maripedia, the evidence is clear and disturbing. Being born outside of marriage lowers the health of newborns and increases their chance of dying. It delays children's cognitive, especially their verbal development. It lowers their educational achievement. It lowers their job attainment. It increases their behavioral problems. It lowers their impulse control. It warps their social development. It helps change their community from being a support to being a danger to their development. It increases the crime rate in their community. That's heavy stuff. And it's stuff we see every day. So what happens? Well, these young people, and again, it's not all of them, but, it, but in terms of some of these communities where these populations are high, they cannot compete. They cannot compete in the schools. They cannot compete in the workforce. And what they do is they just have cycle after cycle after cycle of broken hearts, broken relationships, crime, and dysfunction. And teenagers are having teenagers uh, ba are having babies, and those babies are going to be teenagers who are having babies, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not telling you something you don't know. But the problem is this. Rather than leaders in a lot of these communities coming out and saying, the problem is you're sleeping together without being married. These young people are taught, and they grow up to resent America, resent the free enterprise system, to hate the police to blame racism on everything, to expect more government funding or whatever it is. When the, when the fact, it, it, when it goes all the way back to the very beginning, they were consumed with sexual immorality. Now, folks, plenty of people can make mistakes. We understand that. But there's a cost to those mistakes in our culture. And we are paying a very heavy price for that right now. The church of Jesus Christ should be different. And we should be loving these people. A government program is not going to fix this. That's actually part of the problem. The only thing that's going to change this is changed hearts. Is changed hearts. And it gets scarier. Notice what Paul says here. All right, Paul doesn't talk about the dysfunction. He doesn't talk about all the, the little orphan babies that were left on the street to become either prostitutes or gladiators. 
or just to die and be eaten by wild animals, which was the practice at the time. He doesn't talk about abortion, doesn't talk about anything, but he goes on to talk about the spiritual consequences because the Lord is the avenger of all these things. God sees in the bedroom. He sees in the back of the car. He sees in the back of the alley. He sees. He sees. And he's the avenger of these things. When the Lord comes back, he is going to judge our nation and individuals uh, for these sins. And he says here, just as we told you before, and we solemnly warned you, there is a warning here. God is serious. Recreational sin, uh, recreational sex is damnational sin. And it's, it, 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 like, so anyways, it's like a fire. In, in, a, in a fireplace, it warms the home. It creates a beautiful atmosphere. It's honorable. You put it on the couch and the whole home is burned down. Not every time. Not every family, but in general, but that's just because of God's grace. But in general, what we're having here is just a, a war against what God says is honorable and an embracing of those things that are dishonorable. Galatians chapter six, verse seven through eight says this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows this. He will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows the spirit shall from the spirit Reap eternal life. That's good news. That's good news. It's interesting. Philip Rankin, who's uh, is talking about uh, Calvin. Again, we tend to think our culture is the worst. We have the advantage of having had profound Christian influence in our culture. And there's still a basic morality that, uh, that we all uh, enjoy and participate in. Uh, but uh, we think of 500 years ago. You go back 500 years ago in Geneva, Switzerland, was a cesspool of immorality. It was said of Geneva that it was, uh, it was known for its known, had a reputation for its moral debauchery, including drunkenness, gambling, prostitution, and widespread adultery. Dishonest business practices were common, and blasphemy was publicly practiced. So in that situation, uh, young, naive, new seminary graduate John Calvin shows up on the scene in 1536, and he's going to fix everything. And uh, he starts preaching obedience. Well, things started to change a little bit, but it was a very unpopular message. So they ran him out of town. Can you imagine being the church that fired John Calvin? There's a reputation. Of course, the church fired Jonathan Edwards. They fired him. And then everything went to hell in a handbasket in Geneva. It got worse. So they went back to John Calvin and said, please come back to Geneva. Reichen goes on to say, daily exposure, and Calvin obeyed reluctantly, he came back. Daily exposure to Calvin's sound exposition of the Bible transformed the mind and the heart of Geneva. The citizens embraced their election as the people of God and their calling to build a holy city. Their motto became post tenebrux lux, after darkness light. As, as they learned to worship the God of grace, Geneva became a happier city and it became a more wholesome city. It was said of people visiting Geneva that it was the, the most true example of, of a Christian city. The closest thing that perhaps, uh, you know, heaven would be like. And it happened not because they increased the rules and the penalties. It happened because people fell in love with God. And they said, huh, we don't have to live for this anymore. We love God and we want to please him. And that's what Paul is telling us to do here. He goes here, reminds us, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but for sanctification. 
Again, the positive side of sex is that it's honorable in the bonds of marriage. The negative is it's a transgression, verse 6, and it's impure, verse 7, outside the bonds of marriage. So the solution is marriage. That's hard when you're single, isn't it? I remember hearing, you know, teachings like this when I was single, and I thought, well, you know, but, I mean, what are my options? And, uh, and uh, we don't know what's going to happen down the future and that kind of thing. So I appreciate this. I wanted to bring this in. One commentator mentioned this, and I thought it was good. John Stott. John Stott was an Anglican uh, priest, a great writer, and he remained single his entire life. So he, he has dealt with this issue personally. Uh, the, the writer says this, John Stott, who remained single his entire life, adds a special comment for those who are single and thus lack the proper context for expressing some, uh, their uh, love sexually. Stott says this, We too must accept this apostolic teaching, however hard it may seem, as God's good purpose both for us and for our society. We shall not become a bundle of frustrations and inhibitions if we embrace God's standard, both, uh, but only if we rebel against it. It is possible for human sexual energy to be redirected both into affectionate relationships with friends of both sexes and into loving service of others. Paul closes here. He says, consequently, if you reject this, you're not rejecting man, but God, he again, reminds him this comes from the authority of Jesus Christ, uh, who gives us the Holy Spirit, that uh, he is the one who is going to help us be able to obey this. Uh, so we, we have this, uh, this whole principle here that uh, we actually have the understanding of the word of God. We actually, if you're a Christian, you have the power uh, to be able to keep this commandment. And, of course, we also have each other to help us keep accountable uh, and, 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 and to make holiness attractive, to make holiness attractive, to, to have such family life and such church life that people want to wait and they want to remain pure. But it's hard, isn't it? And, and many of us have failed in this area and have failed multiple times and perhaps failed decades in this area. I would remind you that some of the great patriarchs of the faith failed in this particular area. So I take some comfort from James Grant. He says, the Christian life is not so much about how we start, but how we finished. So no matter what your mistakes have been to date, no matter how difficult this issue seems to be with you, today's a brand new day. And God calls us through the Apostle Paul to excel still more. And we are to be, be consumed in a sense with our sanctification, our walk with the Lord. But Paul recognized he hadn't arrived. Philippians 3 says this, Not that I have already obtained it or already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that which also is laid hold of me by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. So that is our duty. And it will ends up becoming our delight because we're children of God. So we should take uh, every effort to be able to walk according to the Lord and to please Him and to walk in sanctification. Lord Horatio Nelson was, uh, won a stunning victory at Trafalgar. His final message to the fleet hoisted right before the engagement said, Engage the enemy more closely. That message stayed aloft until it was uh, shot down during the battle. Nelson himself, however, was mortally wounded toward the end of the battle, being struck by a .69-inch uh, lead ball from a French sharpshooter. It pierced his lung and cut his artery. 
and he was taken down into the hull of the ship where he lived for three hours, it was said by several witnesses, his last words were, thank God I have done my duty. Nelson was accorded a state funeral. His tomb at Westminster Abbey and the great monument erected to commemorate the victory of Trafalgar at Trafalgar Square in London are engraved with the words, England expects that every man will do his duty. The naval battle of Trafalgar resulted in 22 of the 33 Spanish uh, French ships being lost. The British lost not a single ship. The British were victorious. They ensured that their island would not be invaded, and therefore Trafalgar remains one of the great victories of free people everywhere. And it happened because every man did his duty. May that be said of us. And may some of our last words be, thank God I have done my duty. Lord, we do come before you and just recognize the difficulty of obedience. And Lord, so many of us have such a checkered past and we have uh, failed you in so many ways. And we actually are more experts in this area and the high cost that we have paid for it than some others. But I thank you that to be born again is to be a new creation in Christ Jesus. And that we can learn from the mistakes of the past that we not repeat them and that we can enjoy the, a pure life under the presence of God with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the love of Christ within us. I pray, God, that we would be a people that are walking in holiness and sanctification to such a degree that people would come to this church and say, show me your God. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.